and welcome to the Library Coven, a bi-weekly podcast in which two bookish besties discuss mostly YA fantasy through the lens of intersectional feminist criticism. Why? Because talking about books is pretty magical. I'm Jesse, And I'm Kelly. And this week we're discussing The Final Strife by Sara L. Afari, which tells a story of mainly Sila, who was trained from a young child. Oh, Kelly's pausing. Sorry, it's Sara L. Arifi. Arifi, thank you. Yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> thank you. No, please, anytime. So The Final Strife tells the story of mainly Sila, who was trained from a young child to be a rebel with the sandstorm. But things kind of fall apart when the family who trained her is murdered and we see what her life has become as an adult. And she's helping a wealthy girl, Anor, train to become a warden of their city. Chaos ensues as it does. And the book comes with content warnings, particularly for violence. And this book is definitely adult and not YA. So just a warning for recommending this book to young people. Yeah, definitely like a a mature teen could handle it. You know, someone who's reading, you know, any of the classics or quote unquote, whatever the fuck. But yeah, the the violence, the violence was notable. There's a lot. Yeah. Initial reactions. I'll go first because I wrote practically nothing (laughs) because I forgot (laughs) to finish off my initial reaction. Um, So it's going to be off the cuff as it usually is as the audience knows. So I'll stop stalling and actually say my thing. I <laughs> listened to the audiobook. Um, I think both of us did. But I do mm-hmm. also have this this book and it is a tocho. Like it is it it's is a chonker. substantive. Um and I, I liked it. I thought it was um uh, the competition gave it like beats that you could recognize, you know, the countdown. Um, there's a ton of paratext, which I like, you know, get my rocks off on intellectually, <laughs> <laughs> intellectually. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, I thought the, I'm happy with the ship, very happy with the ship. And I shipped it earlier. What about you? What'd you think? Yeah. yeah. I also listened to the audiobook, which was narrated by Nicole Lewis and Dominic Hoffman. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was tough at times because there were some, like a lot of violence, which we mentioned to get through, but I think the world felt really unique and really well fleshed out. Mm -hmm. And I like that both Sila and Anor are very different characters. Like there's not like, I feel like sometimes when authors write, you know, dual POV, or in this case, there's three POVs, which I haven't mentioned John at all, but um, (laughs) uh, I feel like they did a good job, like making sure those characters felt distinct even if I didn't know at the beginning whose POV it was like I would have understood like who who we were with at that point in time because the characters were so different Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that was definitely something I had to get used to also in the audiobook and I think I I I think for me it's a little easier I I guess I can talk about this later never mind I'll put a pin in it (laughs) (laughs) recommend if you like so I don't read a lot of adult fantasy, so I feel like I kind of struggled with this. Um, and actually, I might not read a lot of it because it is kind of like more violent and I don't want to read that all the time. Um, but I would say like the Poppy War by R.F. Kuang because of the incredible amount of world building that both of these stories use. And I think for both books, like the main character is not like this like damsel in distress. Like mm-hmm. we get none of those vibes. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I know. So it was nice to see something similar to that. And even though I think, you know, why fantasy has moved away from those kind of tropes, but it's nice to see it happening. (laughs) 
And then I feel like the, it also gave like Hunger Games vibes with the Actabar, which is their like competition to figure out who are going to be like the next wardens or whatever. Mm-hmm. That really reminded me like very strongly of the Hunger Games. <laughs> yes, totally. I, I would say it's like a, it, it did feel like more, it did feel so Hunger Games gamesy. It did. It, it really did. Yeah. And yeah, I'm curious to see. It also is reminding me a little bit of, um, Montoya Montoya's um Occulta Nocturna because oh, it's yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah. like Empire and how we're going to destroy the Empire mm-hmm. and yeah I I, I it, it's given me a little bit of that too because I feel like that's where the second book is going like I yeah. am really looking forward to to that next part of it oh and like the book that we read at the like our first book of the season the Jasmine something the Jasmine Throne yes Throne like kind of those vibes as well Jasmine Throne yeah there we go yes totally totally which makes sense when we realized who recommended this book and the Jasmine Throne. oh there we go there we go hello <laughs> yeah we chose this book because it was recommended by uh Melissa in the discord so hey Melissa Hi, Melissa, who also recommended The Jasmine Throne. So way to push us into reading some adult books this season. Thanks. <laughs> Time to talk about world building and through the wardrobe. I'm going to start with like a small caveat that I did listen to this book maybe in like February and we're recording in April. So if I've forgotten some things, fingers crossed, maybe Kelly can push me this is a team it's a team effort so it's a team we're both failing this group project if it doesn't go well (laughs) (laughs) but i tried to take detailed notes so just in case there was a lot about this world that i feel like we can also get into in kylo ren um this time around uh i would say that the world is slightly more dystopian than some of the other books we read um but some of that might be because it's an adult book and i'm not sure if that's why it feels more dystopian like with like I want to say the sandstorms. I forget what they're called. Like the, mm, the tide literal, wind. The tide wind. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're like winds that are like destroy, like literally taking, like killing people. Like it felt a little climate changey, you know? Yeah, totally. And I, so I imagined, you know, the like Raiders of the Lost Ark, the person who like their skin melts off of their, like all of their viscera melts off of their skeleton. That's what I imagined the tide wind doing to oh, people. Okay. I don't like, think I know what that movie is. <laughs> Raider, Indiana Jones? Oh, okay. the I've probably one? seen it. Yeah, I don't probably, remember yeah, it. It's whatever. But yeah, there's this famous scene where the, like the person, <laughs> it's like a wax model and it's like he opens the arc and it kills everyone and it unleashes all this stuff. Okay. And, um, but yeah, the tide wind like is a sandstorm that's so powerful that it like literally gets rid of, it just like turns people into bones in the street. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also kind of want to be like, why is it not destroying their bones? But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, I want to know the physics of this fictional phenomenon, please. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I had similar thoughts that like there's so much the, the conversation almost doesn't lend itself to be like neatly divvied up into segments. Right. Because it could also go so much in one does not simply because it's like so multilayered. The author is thinking so much about cast cased cast right cast thank you Mm -hmm. yeah just like there's each element seems like connected and purposeful whether that's from like how and why the oppressions are happening to like the plumbing setup to like food and dress and like the political system also religious traditions the different types of combat forms like there was just so much going on and I felt completely like immersed 
like the Jojo seed. No, the Joe. What was it called? The seeds, the tree, the trees everywhere and the mythology around that. And mm-hmm. um, I do think the paratext helped, but that's just me. <laughs> I don't even remember the paratext, which means I was <laughs> maybe not paying as much attention to this part. I guess I'll I'll just say this part right here. Some part of the part of the paratext that I liked was the like the um the griot stories that talked about like the mythology of how things happened and some mm-hmm. of the history because there's so much like erasure of what was actually happening by the people in in power and then also the wardens all keep their diaries so super fascinating from like we've talked about archives on the show a lot you know and Mm -hmm. like what is archived and by whose perspective and then what is also left out yes yes yeah anyway so good we talked a little bit about the blue sand but i just love this imagery it was totally it, it was like something i hadn't like with the tide wind and the river being made of sand and all this i just loved that i just thought it was so cool and um i hadn't ever experienced a world like that before and then also made me feel glad that i don't have sand everywhere currently well yeah it's not fun having grown up going to the beach quite often it does get everywhere um but i know what you mean like i feel like you could really like i felt like i had a very good depiction in my head of what the whole world looked like not just like specific little places um and that was really cool to have something like you wrote like so evocative like I'm like oh yes I can see this I feel like I'm in this place when I'm reading or you know listening um which is a great feeling (laughs) there is an overt hierarchical system within the world based on blood color so we have the dusters who have blue blood and they're considered like the low class um embers who are upper class and have red blood and then the ghosting who are the lowest class and have clear bud um even their children are forced to work as soon as they can walk and then at the end we find out there's someone with yellow blood which we'll probably have more info about in the next book but i was just like what is going on (laughs) yeah this part this reminded me there's there's a few different it's almost like a sub a sub trope like the different colored blood in fantasy Mm -hmm. and how that like separates people and how you have to hide it and you don't want to get injured in the ring, right? Because yeah. you can't have your blood show. A quote from one of the paratexts is um, one of the griots was telling a story about like the orchard of all, which was like the ghostings as the roots and unseen, the dusters as like support, like the trunk and the embers as like the fruit and the apples, which also have been mm-hmm. the farthest to fall. But it's just interesting yeah. how like the empire symbolizes itself and how it like retroactively justifies it through imagery and metaphor like the 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 caste system that is like so violently upheld yeah sounds familiar you know (laughs) it's like maybe maybe it felt so dystopian because it so much of it felt like not fantastical to a certain yeah certain parts of it you know it just felt so real even though i knew it was an entirely fictional story yeah um, we also have the Siege of the Silent, which is a rebellion of the ghosting against their oppressors. And the reason that uh, the hands and tongues of the ghosting have been like taken, um, cut off, uh, this was like introduced very early on in the books. And that's when I was like, whoa, 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 this is, we're, we're getting into some adult fantasy for sure now. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because the order is maintained like overtly with violence. Mm-hmm. I nerded out a little bit because this is reminding me of some theory that I was reading at the end of grad school. And I think is like super important and relevant. And it's by this, um, uh, this person named Jasbir Puar. And, um, 
in 2007 they wrote a, a book called terrorist assemblages kind of talking about how like really expanding the idea of homo nationalism and how that gets enforced mm-hmm. like whiteness and queerness then re- work to like reinforce the state but like the the book that really made me think about it with this this fantasy with um the last strife is her her book the right to maim and the subtitle is debility capacity and disability and it's it's specifically like a it's like a, expanding on Membe's formulation of necropolitics, which I'm, I think that we've talked about on the show before, but like how the state designates certain bodies as available to be maimed and disabled and debilitated and other bodies are like set out for like safety. So it, it talks about like anti-occupation activism as disability activism because people are getting so frequently like disabled and debilitated by living under like colonial occupation regimes. Puar is really interested in Palestine and how like the the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, literally have a quote unquote shoot to maim policy, just like this framing in Global South and like global majority, honestly, disability studies Mm -hmm. framework that takes like power and colonialism into account for how empire distributes disablement. It literally is like doling out, you know, being like, here's this is for you. This is for you. This is for you. And. I um, wanted to read a quote, a quote from page 143, if that's if that's OK with you. Or do you have anything to like add or, or weave in before I do this? No, no. You have a wealth of knowledge about this that I do not have. So please. <laughs> All right. So we'll definitely need to put a con- I, like a content warning, man, at the beginning of this of this book of this episode. I'm glad that you pointed that out, you know, at the in- initially. OK, so 143 to 144 of. The Right to Maim by Jasbir Puar, and the chapter is called Will Not Let Die. Maiming thus functions not as an incomplete death or an accidental assault on life, but as the end goal in the dual production of permanent disability via the infliction of harm and the attrition of the life support systems that might allow populations to heal from this harm. So, like, not only are we dealing out death, disablement, and debility, we're also taking away any sort of, like, social safety net or supports that would, Mm -hmm. you know, help people. And so, she continues, maiming is required. Not merely as a byproduct of war, of war's collateral damage, it is used to achieve the tactical aims of settler colonialism. Oh, yeah, that's it. (laughs) I'll stop there. (laughs) It's, It's dense enough, but... Yeah, it's, like, a sustained practice, and that's what's necessary to, like make sure that the the colonial order goes on right and it's this the mutilation of of the ghostings yeah and then the incapacitation and the debilitation of the the dusters with via via drugs which we'll talk about later um and enforced poverty yeah i i just like puar's work was totally coming up the throughout the entirety of this book and i was like oh my gosh yes this is exactly in fantasy this is you know I'm just like impressed that so many of the novels that were novels that we're reading are showing that this is happening in a like grappling with this in a fantastical world. Yeah. And yeah, I'm not sure what that. I don't know it, what it what it says, you know, that so much of our fantasy we're like we're we're actually in science fiction, speculative fiction generally, we're actually thinking very much about like our present conditions. Yeah. And I think that's like the history of fantasy and science fiction is it gives us the ability to look at these things without sometimes people realizing that's what we're doing so like even thinking about like something simple like star trek like having like the first interracial kiss on tv you know like those kinds of things Mm -hmm. are dealing with our real lived world and i don't think we always 
put that together right away and then we look back on it and we're like oh they were already talking about this stuff you know what i mean yeah definitely so we're kind of seeing it in our in our and through the podcast this might be the first book where you've read that has a non-verbal language i couldn't think of any others but this was really exciting to me i took sign language in high school and in college and in this story this the the language has to do with more of the whole body uh sign language american sign language at least does use like facial expressions and hands and like movement but this seemed to be like almost like bigger than that like the you would emote bigger but um i just thought this was really cool because it's not something we see very often and um it's important that people be represented so i think in this context we would think of it uh obviously uh in the story people who use this nonverbal language aren't deaf but they can't speak so uh and this is a communication a way that people communicate who are mute as well is you know through sign language so i just thought this was really cool and i appreciated seeing that in the book i could not agree more i was just like thrilled by this aspect also because it was like so beautifully done and it was like Mm -hmm. everything was so substantive like you could tell it just wasn't like we need sign representation in my fantasy book you know throw it in there for like un poco de sazon you know on there on whatever you're (laughs) making but like and, and also how they talked about like limbs and because it, it, it it's like it wasn't trying to it's a good example I think of how not to appropriate but like how mm-hmm. to still discuss and include like representation in an important like fleshed out capacity I love the parts where si- so Sila actually learns the learns the ghosting language or learns to understand it but then was talking mm-hmm. about how she can't reproduce it because it's like her mm-hmm she it's almost like she's too she has too many phalanges like she has too mm-hmm. she has her hands like make it so that she can't yeah. actually communicate in their language the way that they communicate and i like that like different reframing about how like oh yeah maybe these people who are seen as like you know temporary temporarily abled in certain ways or abled in certain capacities actually that makes them incapable of yeah this other thing so i i just kind of liked how it it destabilized a little bit the idea of like what disablement is I don't know because I didn't read I have the the physical book and I started like I read the first 100 pages and I was like oh my god I need the audiobook but I can't remember if Hafsa and the other like ghostings if the sign is like offset in um italics or not but oh yeah I'm not sure but like it wasn't even you and I both listened to the audiobook and it like wasn't necessary we didn't find that no. necessary at all so I just think that's really cool and that more I'm excited to see yeah. more of this hopefully me too and i'm gonna use this as a moment to uh call out people (laughs) real quick to be like if you want to learn like american sign language you need to learn it from people who are deaf are part of the deaf community or that the deaf community has signaled are good teachers of sign language because i have seen a lot of people on tiktok um, i follow quite a few deaf creators who Mm -hmm. are like stitching their videos with people who are teaching people sign language that's in quote mm-hmm. um, and it's very bad it's wrong uh, I, I've like watched some of it and even with like my remedial like understanding of sign language I'm like that's not what you're saying at all mm-hmm. um, so just a reminder to learn from the people who are part of that community or the community has signaled as people who will be good teachers um, for example like Bill Vickers is a very popular um, sign language teacher um, and you can watch all like he has so many videos online he is hearing um, but the deaf community has said you know like we trust that person and so uh, if you want to learn sign language, there's lots of good videos, um, but make sure that you're using a reputable source. <laughs> good caveat to put in there. Definitely. It reminds me also about, um, you know, just the 
uh, the whiteness of Spanish too, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like white people, white colonizers, myself included, you know, teaching Spanish language and how like the, the gringeria of it all, you know? And <laughs> so it can be like, yeah, it's definitely, um, yeah. Figuring out what your lane is and who yeah. you need to support <laughs> is important. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Let's discuss all things magic. The magical system in this book is really interesting in that it has a lot to do with the color of the blood of individuals within the society. So like only the embers are able to perform magic, but then we learn that is a lie. So then, and that's happens like kind of towards the end of the book and it like kind of shakes up your idea of how the whole book has functioned before <laughs> that to the point where I'm like, I don't understand this magical system at all. And I think I will understand it in book two. <laughs> Yeah, because it's like, it's just more, it's just colonizers stole the knowledge and are like, erased the history and were like, it was always ours and it was never yours and turned, yeah. And it's just like, you're totally right. It just like blew open the whole framework, Mm -hmm. right, of power because magic is often a metaphor for power. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see next book. I feel like maybe I'll understand more, but I was just like, huh, I don't know how any of this works now. Everything I thought was wrong. (laughs) The one thing that I, I do that I think we can talk about that it's like the mechanics of it, which I thought were kind of cool. Like the drawing, the different runes and how there's like four main ones, Mm -hmm. but like the different combinations are what makes it do like different things. It just reminded me of those like alchemy games, you know, that you can get on like your, no. Uh, mm -mm. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) But it's like, yeah, you can like combine different elements and it's just like kind of a puzzle, you know, to be like, mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. what's the next thing I can make, right? If I combine these two different things or the, these three different combinations, if I combine these combinations, what can I do? Um, I just thought that that was, that was really neato. Now we're going to talk about conflict villains and good versus evil in our segment, Get Me Kylo Red. Uh, so Sila asks if the Naruto, which are like the police, or no, Naruto police, and Naruto is like the place that they're in, take the drugs and sell it back to the lower class communities, which just sounded very familiar to me. And I was like, huh, very interesting. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The the book was dealing a lot with, you know, caste and empire and substances and how they are, yeah, used and distributed yeah. and then people are criminal criminalized right by the same system that gave them the substances to begin with yeah mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like there are no words you know i know i would say also kind of the sandstorm a little bit or like villainous or maybe possibly just their leader so the sandstorm want to be the new oppressors in order for their own freedom and i personally uh i'm like well if we're we become the oppressors then we're just as bad as they were like i understand like a by any means necessary kind of framework but i think if we become the oppressors then that's like just as bad so Mm -hmm. maybe by any means necessary to get there but you know i guess everyone doesn't have the same moral values so that's also kind of difficult but anyways that leader guy was kind of shit i don't remember his name um anansi i think oh was it anansi no that was so loot and anansi are the same person oh okay they were the like head of the sandstorm but then i forget what sila and john's quote-unquote dad was named abuser we can just call him what he is yeah yeah 
I forget what his name was, but yeah, it was like these patriarchs that are, that are like, mm-hmm, yeah, this is what needs to be done. And then John was like, you could tell that he was a character who's kind of like parroting the lines. He's like looking for purpose and, yeah. and stuff like that. And um, yeah, he used the word cleanse. And anytime you see cleanse, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yes. You should be concerned. <laughs> oh, it like reminded me because I, I was telling Kelly before we started recording that I had just finished this book revolution in our time about the black panther party and it kind of reminded me i was like thinking about that um after because i read it after this book but i was kind of thinking about it and like the depictions that we get of the black panthers as being like this overtly masculine black men carrying guns and that sort of thing but then um when you like look into what they were doing they were like coalition building with you know other um, marginalized groups like latinx folks um poor white folks like they were feeding children, doing free breakfast programs, helping people get groceries, like helping get people out of jail when they were in prison for like wrongfully f- mm-hmm. for things. Education. Yeah, education. And it kind of made me think of that. And like, we have a depiction of what the people say they want and then we have what they actually are. So I, would, I do wonder if we'll see that with the sandstorm where like they're actually doing a lot of good things, but then what we see in the public about them is very different. So mm. I'll be interested to see where this goes. Like, as the story goes on. Yeah. Like what's the propaganda telling us versus exactly. what's actually going on? Like the care work, the like bringing up of the mm-hmm. children, the taking care of the community, yeah. all that stuff. And I learned that like, I forget what it was like the number, but the majority of people in the black Panther party were black women. So mm. yeah, don't hear about that very often. Nope. And they don't get the credit that often. They do not. Anyways, anyways, <laughs> we're changing that here. Single handedly. <laughs> well, not multiple handedly, mm-hmm. four handedly. <laughs> four-handedly this like definitely segues to my next point which is about like ends and means mm-hmm. for huge like that's it's so common a common thread for sure in this segment and yeah talking about the stolen which are the who the sandstorm ended up like stealing babies and swapping them switched at birth yeah. essentially like changelings yeah exactly <laughs> and yeah we see how that like you know that really anur is one anur and sila are both you know part of part mm-hmm. of the on on opposite ends of this um and yeah sila realizing that she's just a tool and that she doesn't know how to like how she is being used or how to use the thing that she has become you know yeah yeah i just thought that this was a meditation that the book was coming back to um and i'm interested yes. to see where sila goes because she's leaving the She's leaving the world that we currently know in this book and going somewhere else, um, which is really exciting. And to see how Sila then is, I think, probably going to be pushed in her solidarity, her like cross disability solidarity, her cross cast solidarity with the ghostings who she's going to be spending so much time with. But yeah, ends and means, ends and means. And I also think that we'd be remiss if we didn't put education in this uh, point in this section, because like it, is a central mechanism that upholds oppressive systems it's it's like if you can't learn your history then you're doomed to repeat it you know that age-old age-old saying or whatever and yeah just the it makes sense that you know all of these attempts to the revisionist histories because you know Mm -hmm. people don't want to feel uncomfortable about the bad shit that has happened and that they are complicit Mm -hmm. in currently and it's like yeah you have to face that and then yeah. you have to go the only way is through, you know? Yeah.
Okay, onward, magical friends. Just as one does not simply walk into Mordor, one does not simply read fantasy without talking about all of the representations of the stuff we have already been talking about <laughs> and we'll keep talking about in this segment. Um, we're going to talk about power and bodies and how they relate. One of the first things that really stood out to me in this book was this concept of time being different depending on where you live. It was so interesting to me. So like if you live in the lower class area, you hear the time later. And so you kind of always are having to like accommodate for that. And this was really interesting to me as a black person who is always early to everything, but I do think I overcompensate a bit for, you know, stereotypes about black people being late all the time. And we have something called CP time, which is like color people time. And we talk about that and reference to lots of different people of color. And it's a joke within our communities. But then when someone else says something about it, it's like, "Mm -mm, no, nope. (laughs) But it was just an interesting thing that came up in the story that I like appreciated and was also like, huh, I wonder, I wonder what the author's saying here, maybe about like the means that we have to be on time, different places, just with like, you know, the lack of transportation that comes to lower class areas uh, you know like Mm -hmm. all kinds of things but anyways for some reason this stood out to me as like one way that oppression happens is like by affecting our time yeah and how much like leisure time there is or Mm -hmm. yeah time to be receiving support instead of only like working and, and different things like that completely yeah I showed up uh one time for a thing in my department on time a study group and uh, it, it started not on time. Well, it yeah. started on perfect time. I just showed up too early <laughs> is what happened. I did not get the memo. Everyone else did. And it was me and this other, the other white guy in my program. And we both showed up. <laughs> we were both like, oh, shit. Joke's on us. Yeah. Time just means different things in different communities. We are the butt of the joke. Not the other way around. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <yeah. laughs> you didn't understand. No, I didn't get I didn't get the memo. Didn't understand. <laughs> um we we already talked about sign. So, I just thought we can mention it here cuz yeah. this is our re- representation segment, but I feel like we already got into like how rad it was and how much we want to see s- yes. more of this sort of thing. Please more. <laughs> the joba trees. There I was thinking go. jojoba, like the jojoba seeds. Yes, yes. <laughs> like, the, when you said oil. it, I was like that sounds right. <laughs> And you're like, no, that's a thing. Joba seeds, the Joba trees and the lower caste folks in the dredge imitating the rich. It, it was just like, it was just definitely made me think of like bootstrapping and the myth of like manifesting versus the reality of generational wealth mm-hmm. and like pl- historical plunder. Yeah. I'm, I'm snapping over here. Like, yes, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, I thought that this was like the author was really being like, yeah, really just showing what, what we're doing when we're like trying to be the next Elon Musk or whatever yeah. the fuck, you know, it's like, no, look at, look at what you're aspiring to. And mm-hmm. maybe like, yeah, it just, it showed it for like, it was just kind of sad. Yeah. You know, looking at these like trees, these little like stick trees because they don't have the resources to like access the water or whatever, yeah. you know, in order to be, or the time to care for the garden yeah. or whatever, because they're always working. And it's just, yeah, no, maybe you manifested it, but also you probably didn't. Maybe you manifested it. Maybe it was white privilege. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And class privilege Mm -hmm. and citizenship privilege Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and all this other shit. Yes. There was no binary gender system. This was beautiful. Mm -hmm. I loved this. Um, The main deity is non-binary slash genderqueer slash a they them. I don't know how they would describe it or whatever. Yeah. And Marigold, who was Hasa's... 
um, caregiver and comrade is NB. Mm-hmm. And Hasa is also transitioning uh, MTF. So, oh, I think I missed that. So, yeah, she takes hormones. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just thought that this was like, there's no reason why we can't imagine mm-hmm. worlds that work completely differently and where, you know, the binary has already been transcended. Yeah, let's do it. It'll be a much better world. <laughs> it really will. Okay, this last part, the, the, like the part where the ghostings use the sleeping sickness as a ruse to escape. I was just like, chef's kiss. Mm-hmm. Fuck yes. Use people's ableism against them mm-hmm. because they're always uh, underestimating, you know, people yes. who are lower who are poor, who are disabled, or yeah. both, and yeah, just just taking, just like how power can be, like harnessed and captured in these, like in the undercommons, you know, to yeah. use like Fred Moten. Yeah, I just I loved this. I was like, I I kind of I once I realized that like Hafsa was or Hafsa was in like a there was like a more coordinated effort by the ghostings to escape. I was like, oh my god, it's the sleeping sickness. They're using it. They're disappearing. I'm like, good for them. Get out of there. They did a good job. Good job finally it's time for shipwrecked a segment about sexuality asexuality sex romance and relationships and sometimes we take liberties and do some shipping of our own i would say i definitely prefer sila and anur over sila and john i was just like john is just like he's just a guy I, okay actually i realize that you probably haven't heard that sound on tiktok where they're like he's literally just a guy hit him with your car um <laughs> <laughs> but kelly's not really on tiktok so i'm gonna guess that so i rely on jesse <laughs> um <laughs> but all my other tiktok people will understand what i'm talking about but john's just like a hot guy and i'm like mm, that's all he has going for him really because he is on the wrong side of history at the moment um so i definitely mm-hmm. prefer silent and anore I completely agree with you. And there was one moment where Sila, I think it was like towards the beginning or maybe it was in the middle. Who knows? It was a long book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was like, Sila was talking about like what she and John had and what they shared. And I'm like, what you share is a trauma bond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I hope that you all can unpack that because. Yeah. 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 But, and there was so much violence, but there was a fade out with our, our, women loving women sex scene and i was scenes and i was just a little disappointed i was a little surprised but as someone who's like interested in writing romance i do understand how like writing a sex scene might be more difficult than writing something violent right so i don't know i did feel also weird about it i mean there was also a sex scene i think with john and silo that was also fade to black so it wasn't just like one over the other which is yeah at least it was (laughs) uniform yes. across whatever gender sexuality stuff was going on exactly yeah. but and i it's, and but it's I fine if it's surprised. not the author's style or yeah. whatever yeah yeah but i i was also surprised i was like you're literally cutting off people's hands and stuff drawing and quartering them and then you're doing a fade to black sex scene like what <laughs> I, yeah it's yeah. A, and it's not the it's not the first time we've talked about it no. it's like i think it's it's pretty ubiquitous honestly i think in in fantasy yeah adult mm-hmm. adult fantasy also you know but i guess it depends because then you get those like fantasy novels like um katie robert and she does oh, not yeah. shy away from sex scenes at all or violence like neither one so yeah but i do think we see like with contemporary fantasy maybe less fade to black and then like with mm-hmm. like this i forget what the, like high fantasy books more fade to black yeah yeah fair enough but i'm like let's i don't know 
envision I wonder how magical it could be right if we imagined what sex would be like in like the fictional world where we're not like upheld by all of these necessarily like our hang-ups right yeah yeah um I'm just curious I guess maybe that means like and there's a whole subgenre of paranormal romance Mm -hmm. right that is like a whole other thing right but that's then the romance is like your thread that you're following. I mean, you're the you're the expert in that in that genre. More yeah. Than me. Well, I think it makes it kind of hard too because then like the thing that like frustrates me sometimes I think with adult fantasy novels that are like these high fantasy novels is that I mean, with the exception of Sarah J. Mass, let me just say that because her books are thirsty as fuck. But the uh, pining, <laughs> oh, it's so good. But I do think sometimes, and I can link to like a um. There's an, an Ara riot, riot article about it, about how like adult fantasy written by women is often categorized as YA. And yeah. I wonder if some people pull back from writing romance into their adult fantasy novels as a way to kind of make sure that it's taken more seriously or that people don't try yeah. and categorize it as YA. Because like we do see YA books that have included, uh, you know, more, I don't want to say graphic depiction of sex, but like, much more sex than we had in books growing up but the adult books sometimes they're like let's go almost overboard on the violence i'm thinking of you mm-hmm. are of kwong like the book was great but oh my god um <laughs> yeah, yeah um and then like there's no sex in it and then they can't get flagged as being like young adult books i mean even though they still do so i'm also like it's not working <laughs> yeah it's the author has to do whatever they think is best yeah. for the story but yeah um if any we're, we're readers out here who also are like, I don't know, the yeah. magical sex. Why yeah. not? Yeah. I say go to Katie Robert that route. <laughs> what could you do with those runes? Yes. I wonder. I wonder. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> we'll just leave it on that mm-hmm. titillating end note. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk about writing style, narration, characterization, plot structure, and basically whatever comes to mostly Kelly's mind. <laughs> in kill your darling i think only <laughs> kelly's mind i'm looking at these notes now you're right that you got pointing. one thing in there it, it belongs in real talk you were right <laughs> okay that's what i thought okay never mind so it's me for for a bit so mm-hmm. just feel free to stop me or add in whenever please go ahead <laughs> there's a glossary mm-hmm. um which was downloadable even with the audiobook which i appreciate not all of the audiobooks include some of the like text like a glossary or a friggin' map they should be downloadable in pdf form and i think also people should be reading the acknowledgments and the author's note i feel like not having those in audiobook form is a bit rude and then it's not unabridged <laughs> exactly you're abridging that shit then mm-hmm. and especially if like if you know it's helpful if you're like researching agents or researching, you know, yeah. publishing and, you know, stuff like looking at the, the acknowledgements and the author's note is like quintessential. And sometimes you can actually gain a lot of knowledge by like the author. Beast of Prey was an example. Like they had a really important substantive author author's note. Yeah. And I think it happened in Bloodmark too and Legendborn, but none of those were included in the audiobooks. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's my soapbox. <laughs> the map is blue. Lovely. And it's split into two halves oh. on the front cover and the back cover. Nice. And I very, very cleverly did not put my microphone on top of the books that we're recording for today I'm so I can show it to you, you in this video. <laughs> oh, but wow. 
so like it's massive yeah and so that's the one half of the continent and then the other half is on the other side is on the back side so that was kind of yeah almost kind of hard to like it was cool but then i uh, do they have like a full page i think they did have like a full page map also um that made it a little bit easier to like see but but yeah no i don't see a map never mind full page map okay um but yeah so many paratexts also i was in heaven I just like, I loved how Dominic Hoffman narrated the Griot passages also. I thought that was really well done. And I think that like, you mentioned this at the top and we kind of talked about it. So like the combination of the audio book narration and the semi-omniscient or like, um, uh, maybe I'm using the wrong term, literate, whatever, PhD, who cares? You still don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. And so like the, this perspective that like switched between characters. And I think what I'm trying to say is like the, the focus of the narration and internal monologue seemed to switch between characters within the chapters themselves. And in mm -hmm. the audio format, it just took me a second to readjust oh, okay. whenever the switch happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that if I were reading, I think the page breaked in the visual medium. Yeah. I think I like didn't realize how I was taking that for granted and how I was reading the transition. So yeah, I just thought that was interesting to point out as far as like the difference in medium, but like, yeah, I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> we got there in the end. <laughs> My final thing that I'll put on there is Haas at one point decides like word sneaky, like stop being word <laughs> sneaky to Sila. And I'm like, oh my God, word sneaky. That's perfect. It so encapsulates like, yeah, just like how slippery language can be and how you can really use it to obscure as much as you can to reveal. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Are we ready for, for real talk? I think so. Okay, why don't you why don't you take it away? So this book got me thinking about uh, forcing sobriety on people and what that means for like their autonomy. Like, is it okay to do that um, when you want what's best for them? When it's not something they want for themselves? Um, I don't know the answer to that, and I don't know that sobriety can be successful if the person doesn't want it for themselves. But it just got me thinking about it because in the end, Sila was, you know, obviously she at, or not obviously at the end she had to keep using the drug because it was causing um like she had used it so much that it was causing seizures uh for her to not be taking it and she was glad to have like gotten off of it in some form but i think that can be like really really hard for people who are dealing with like you know substance abuse issues to like force them to stop it i don't i don't really know that that can be successful so yeah i don't know i was just thinking about it and the book made me think about it because sila was pissed at the beginning but then happy about it at the end so i don't know that's all <laughs> yeah i'm really glad that you brought this up because it's definitely a, a core part of what the one of the main characters is is struggling with and like her arc and we don't see it a lot in fantasy mm -mm. even though it's definitely ubiquitous in our real world <laughs> yeah and so, yeah, what does it mean for, for it to like not show up for it to, for its absence to be so glaring and, you know, and mm -hmm. that's why I think its presence was so like notable Yeah. in the book. I appreciated how like the, it was treated with compassion mm -hmm. and also realistically to a certain extent, like you can see Sila struggling in her own mind yeah. and also struggling with like commitments she's making to other people and how she's letting other people down, mm -hmm. you know? And then also the idea that this whole idea that the dose makes the poison and just like the murkiness of being a sick, disabled body mind, yeah. you know, and also like societal narratives and prejudices, because like 
I go into the hospital and get IV infusions every few weeks. So I'm also an IV, like an intravenous drug user, yeah. if you think about it, right? Mm-hmm. If you're thinking from like a harm reduction, like no drug is worse or better than another drug, you know, calf, like, yeah, like your, your ADHD meds versus meth, which are pretty much the, you know, have a very similar like chemical like makeup and yeah it just it, there were no easy answers there are no easy answers as you mentioned but but yeah I just appreciated that it it gives space like space time to explore it and to like actually give someone like see the human behind mm-hmm. someone who's also dealing with substance issues yeah. yeah 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 kind of to like riff off your point above what I put in here was um like coping mechanisms and capital T trauma and chronic illness and disablement and yeah, yeah just how it's it's so like I was saying, no, no easy answers. No, it's just like so strange to be a sick and disabled body mind and to be like, yeah, you need some medicines here. And like that version of Sila was doing the best that she could in order to survive the really fucking traumatic thing that she saw. And also was feeling so much guilt and shame around, you know? And so it's like, can't go back, but yeah, I don't, I don't know where I was going with that. No, but also I think that's uh, that is a good point, like to talk about, like because she is obviously dealing with PTSD, but there's nothing there. There's no systems in place to help her with that, and so right. like, what do you do? And there are there's nothing to help you. You might turn to something that helps you feel better, even though it might not be good for your body. So mm-hmm. maybe also an argument to be made for social structures that help people dealing with trauma. <laughs> yep, exactly. There it is. There it is. <laughs> There's also a quote in um, on chapter six that says obedience is killing us. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, man, case in point. Mm-hmm. General strike, por favor. Yeah. <laughs> Let me maybe grab our card questions. I forgot to get them. Okay. <laughs> Let's see. Which fairy tale or children's story has similarities to this book? None that I can think of, but... Uh, I do think I read somewhere that this book is based on like West African mythology or something. And I am not that familiar with West African mythology. So there you go. Me, me either. Except Anansi. I know Anansi, the spider, <laughs> the storyteller. Um, I'm trying to see if there's an author. There's an acknowledgement. Yeah, I think I saw it like on the um, everyone can listen to me type now. I know I could just edit this shit out it's fine um I'm trying to look is it before the glossary no it'd be after the glossary um yeah it says the mythology of Africa and Arabia on like the author website or like you Mm -hmm. know penguin um but it doesn't give us particular mythology so maybe it's a combination of a lot of things yeah there you go she thanks for sensitivity readers oh nice yeah we love a sensitivity sorry i just had to send my mom to voicemail oh it's okay i was like i don't see (laughs) kelly anymore but i assumed you were like looking on your phone for something um all right what else what else what was the personal impact of this book um it got me thinking about jasbir puar's work and settler colonialism and maiming and debility and palestine yeah and yeah just about how if we could un be a little a lot more unsettled, yeah. I think, as white people and as colonizers, I think that would be a good thing. And it created a space for us to have this wonderful discussion. So it's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> that feels like a good yeah. 
We're done. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Library Coven. We'll be back in two weeks for a discussion of Ray Bear by Jordan Ifueco. As always, we'd love to be in conversation with you magical folks. Let us know what you think of the episode, anything we missed, or just say hi by dropping a line in the comments or by reaching out to us on Twitter or Instagram at the Library Coven, but preferably Instagram because I don't know that either of us are checking our Twitter. <laughs> no, slash maybe we'll just get rid of the Twitter. Maybe. It is a shit show over there. So It is. It is. But regardless of what's happening on the Bird app, you can subscribe to the Library Coven wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd appreciate it if you would rate, review, and also spread the word. Yeah, it's nice when, when, you, share, when you share with another friend who loves books. And if you're able to support our labor financially, you can make a one-time donation to us on Coffee, And you can also support us monthly on Patreon or by shopping at our bookshop.org affiliate page. Until next time, stay magical. Stay magical.